Hello and welcome to the Nish Guarda YouTube podcast series powered by OpenBusinessCouncil.org and CitiesABC.com and FashionABC.org. Once again, we are here to profile and uh, I would say as well, talk with the best uh, personalities in the world that are focusing and looking at the big problems of society, especially our society in the, the verge of the society 5.0 or fourth industrial revolution. Now these things are changing, especially how technology and business can be improved. And now these minds that we bring to the platform can actually inspire us and getting narratives that can actually help us looking at different solutions, different ways of looking at things and learning. Education is one of my passions. And today I bring to, the, to our show uh, a personality that I met recently, but I was quite fascinated, especially because of his attention to education on the metaverse, which is a, a very new area, but is exploding right now. So I want to introduce you to Eugene Capon, a social media futurist, author and speaker of the metaverse, and the 360 creative director of Studio Capon, which is a great name, by the way. So, Thank you so um, much. Yes, welcome to our series. <laughs> So just as a small intro, so Eugene is a, a very active digital personality, is as well a director and podcaster of Eugene Capon and VR uh, and VR talk show Glitched. Um, and among others, uh, he's been an XR creator making VR and 360 experience with millions of views. And he's also uh, the author of all the things you can do in the metaverse and get serious about social media. And I think that this is particularly interesting because they are about education. One of them is for children as well, which we'll talk about during the, the talk, because, of course, at the moment, the children are the ones leading the metaverse. So uh, Eugene is the president and creative director of Studio Capon, a level XR content creation marketing company that uses various web graphical, graphical AR and VR techniques. And the company has a web presence of over 50 million impressions across multi-social media. He has academic background in Bachelor in Liberal Arts from Evergreen State College with an emphasis on the YouTube studies. And upon graduation, he went to work on the YouTube consulting agency Pressplay. So it's quite young, but with a great uh, perspective and a great uh, dynamic and has been working with in different directorial as well roles and, and the creative industry and things like historical Everett Theatre, was of Films and a lot of different things that we could go through this. So, I welcome to your series, Eugene. I'm looking forward to speak with you. Hey, thank you so much for having me. And yeah, I've had such a robust kind of all over the place finding myself career uh, that you know, I it's it's kind of led me on this path of self exploration and kind of figuring out you know what can I give to the world to make it a better place in my own time. No, fantastic! It's yeah. it's wonderful, uh, a wonderful that, and especially your passion for education is is uh, I think that's what brought me to bring it to the podcast. So let's start. You are based in in Seattle, a great city that I love. So um, can you tell us a bit about your background before we start? I mentioned about education, yeah. your background. Yeah, yeah. So um, I mean, from an education standpoint, I have two visual communication degrees: one in fine arts, one in technical design, and then a bachelor's in liberal arts. And what that really was, was a two-year study of uh, everything you would kind of need to become like a social media influencer. And that's that's why YouTube studies is, is kind of what came from it. But I ended up studying everything from like film production to marketing to advanced physics to um, animation. And all those things kind of came together in in such a cool way because – as we're looking at, you know, this byproduct of the third generation, the internet, the metaverse, all those skills are so relevant, even though when I went to go get a, get that kind of like foundation in that background, everybody who's kind of doing it with me was like, I'm going to create YouTube videos for the rest of my life, not realizing that one day YouTube will be a dead platform. Not anytime soon, mind you, but one day. No, fantastic. No, I, I know that uh, all these things are in the crossover. And I think at the moment we have a kind of a an interesting landscape that is personalities like you that are really fast ahead. And most of the people have no clue how to deal with these things or try to deal with this. And then hiring people like us or at least getting into 
uh, a situation of trying to pretend that they know, which is probably the biggest problem <laughs> we have right now. So let, let's look into your journey from studying. And, and I think you, you are quite uh, um, dynamic in your studies because you study digital uh, as a, a first stage. Um, but as well, you've been working a lot of different areas from building and working with agencies to create. So a bit of your career, how yeah. do you build that career and that's what you're doing right now? Uh, it has been just what interests me and how can I use that interest to make a living? You know, just being uh, curious of the world continuously. And that curiosity has just led me to some really interesting opportunities and amazing moments in my life. So like once I got out of once I got out of college um the first time it was 2008 and I could not find an internship to save my life. And you know the the US housing market had just collapsed. There were mass layoffs. It was the second biggest uh social pullback since like the Great Depression here in the United States. And, you know, here, here's me just getting out of college with my, my two associate degrees going, you know, how do I start this? And I was really lucky that, uh, that a friend of mine who got into kind of a better university, he took me as his date to, uh, his boss's house, uh, because he just got this internship. And I was talking to the guy. His name was Chris Landrum. He was one of the guys who invented the swipe pad for the credit cards. And I was like, hey, man, uh, how do you how do you how should I like get started? Like, I'm I'm trying to like I'm, I'm you know, in my early 20s, I'm trying to become a designer and a creative. And I just I've been pounding on doors, knocking on walls. How do I get that first step? And he went, send me your portfolio. And, you know, I'll, I'll see if you're right for an internship. Uh, I got back at my house at three in the morning, sent it off. He called me by noon the next day going, hey, would you like an internship? And I said, absolutely. And this internship was two hours away from my house, both ways. And it was 70 hours a week unpaid. And so I was like. You know, I haven't had any other opportunities in two years. I am so desperate to like break in and and figure out how to like get my footing that I did it. I, I slept on the couch Monday through Friday. I went home on the weekends. They had a it was an industrial complex. So they had showers and I ate at, you know, the local diner down the street, the horseshoe out of uh, Bellingham, Washington. And, you know. Right after uh, this three months of grueling work, um, they offered me a full-time job as a as an art director, which kind of made some people a little mad because, you know, I was like the new kid versus people who had been in the industry for, you know, 10, 20 years. And suddenly I was, you know, I was someone's boss, technically. And so, uh, yeah, so after that, they moved to Phoenix. And I was like, you know, I really want to go back to school to figure out, you know, how I can make a bigger impact on everything. And at the end of my internship, uh, a buddy of mine named Joey Clift, who is one of the uh, top media personalities for First Nations. Um, and actually, he just got done working on a show called Spirit Rangers for Netflix. Uh, he called me up and he was like, hey. Uh, I have this movie I want to make. Um, it, it doesn't pay, but I know you're you're trying to get your portfolio out there. Would you come and and do like a website and a shirt and a poster and just like VFX for this thing? I said absolutely, and I did it and I turned it in. And he asked me, "Do you want to be in this movie?" I was like, "You, you want me in your movie?" He, I'm like, "As what?" He said, "Warehouse Thug Number Two." No, well, like, all right, let's do it. Uh, so I got in my car. I I drove six hours, and I was in this movie, and it was really funny seeing me burn my face off with coffee, uh, in the scene, and it went to film festivals. And when this film went to film festivals, um, 
I got to sit on the panel and answer questions because I'd worked on it both both as a post-production supervisor and as an actor. And building something bigger than myself and then getting on stage to educate others on that process was the best feeling in the world to me. And I went, how do I keep this feeling going? How do I create that more immersive impact? And so that's when I went to school, got my BA in YouTube studies. And as soon as I got out, I started co-running After Effects Seattle, which is one of the largest motion design user groups in the United States with uh, with a guy named Topher Welsh. And when I was there, um, there was a guy named Lou Ward who'd created a very early VR prototype, like off of a smartphone. And I remember after the meetings, after the meetings, we all went to a bar down the street and it was raining, it was cold. And he hands me this Google cardboard with this phone shoved into it. And I put it on my face and the experience started. And it was the Disney's Iron Giant walking over, picking me up and walking with me in his hand. And I just remember thinking, this is where it's all going. Like this, this level of immersiveness that I've been searching for, for, you know, the last how many years, like this was the answer. This is far beyond every YouTube video I've ever watched, every, you know, interactive website I've ever seen. This, this three degrees of freedom experience that a guy in his apartment made with no help whatsoever. Like this is where it's all going. And I quit my job. I was an art director at the time at a YouTube consulting agency. And I jumped into VR full time. And that was the best decision I've ever made in my life. Wow. Kudos to you. It's really impressive, especially the your first internship. And I think everyone should listen to that and your persistence um, and as well your resilience because it's not easy. And I, I think like you and your privilege, you are from a first country world. Uh, we have people mm-hmm. over the world. Uh, in my team, I have people from Iran to Africa, and, and really the challenge are really big and special for young people. And I think it's really something that I admire and kudos and respect. I know that it's easy and that persistent because most of the people give up and they complain to someone, especially in Europe, it's more tricky. Um, so so I think so. one of the things with your passion is definitely the design and uh, all the interaction between design. You mentioned YouTube. And as well, of course, right now, we've been increasing to XR and and, uh, and Metaverse. So let's look at this kind of overview. How did you, more from a, a career, but as well from how do you see design, and especially because you have this interaction between design, video, and digital and social media, which is a very uh, unique stuff. And it's very difficult because it's very beautiful in theory, but the practice is a bit more complex. Yeah, uh, so when... When I discovered, you know, XR in its entirety, you know, VR, AR, MR, and by the way, back in the day, MR meant something a little bit different than what it currently means. Uh, so I think the evolution in that term alone is really interesting to take a look at. Um, I, you know, fell in love with the technology and the possibility of storytelling uh, with the medium, and I wanted to tell the world about this thing that I had discovered and there were very, very few experts. And you got to remember, this was like 2014, 2015. Like there was no VR industry yet. Right. Um, And so what I started doing is I started joining every panel I could. I started uh, using After Effects to create, you know, original pieces, which I would go in and teach the process to people, uh, including I actually the uh, the user group that I co-run. I took one of the months and I went, hey, this is a film that I, I released today on Steam uh, called Journey VR. And I had done it originally for SIF, uh, which is the Seattle International Film Festival. And it, it was it was so interesting that like that entire like line of uh, creativity because before getting into Sif, um, I did it just as like a preview piece for uh, Seattle Fashion Week, and somebody at Sif saw it was like, "Hey, 
we're adding 360 video to the pl- to the to the show this year. We I if I give you my card, I'll make sure it gets in. This is fantastic. And I said, sure, let's do it. And so I got into SIF as like an official selection for this piece that I did. And there was somebody at Steam, the uh, the game platform. And he was like, hey, um, if anybody is doing any like 360 videos, we're adding that to Steam very soon because it's it's right before the emerge of it, right? Before it get, got popular. And I went, awesome. You know, I can sell rentals of this thing on, on Steam, which is something they don't offer anymore. And I got it in and it became the number one selling 360 video for 30 days uh, when it launched, which was fantastic. You know, I, I technically made my money back, uh, even though I didn't expect to. Uh, and I mean, just the level of possibility in in XR has been just so amazing, especially from just the try to do things before the reality of the situation and, and the growth of the industry actually set in where you're just trying things and creating and, and you don't know if it's going to work. Nobody knows if it's going to work, but taking the time and the passion and the just putting something, making something and putting it out there in the world, I think is really where the education aspect comes in. Right. Because, I mean, before anybody knows something, nobody knows it. And it's up to us to take the first step to to have that interest and that curiosity, put it into practice, and then put it into the world. And so as we're looking at these like small things that I've done in the past, moving into this entire industry that has just emerged from the uh, idea of the metaverse, I think it's so interesting. Uh, you you call it the uh, what fifth industrial revolution, right? Uh, is the there's the fourth industrial revolution? The fourth in society five, yeah, the fourth, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it's, I, there's uh, some people talking about the fifth. In the end of the day, it's revolution is <laughs> much bigger. Yeah, yeah. I um so b- because I come from like um an internet background. I mean, this for me is the third generation of the internet. I mean, we we use the term Web three, and most people that use it are just like cryptocurrency nfts blockchain even though web3 literally means third generation web technologies which is an entire ecosystem of technologies that most people aren't even taking into consideration no really and i think you touch uh, a couple of very important things because i like what i like about the evolution as a creative and as well as a social media personality is that you've been looking at the epicenter of all these different things um so, so from your evolution initially with YouTube and then producing your videos and podcasts and social media, now, mm-hmm. uh, especially for people listening to us, and I think our team will put that during the interview, you're doing some very cool stuff with AI, especially your AI animal stuff on Instagram, really cool stuff. Um, so how do you see this evolution? Because I, this is really going right now at the velocity of the light, even for people like us. And I think the, the point right now is how you can actually get the creative part with um, as well, the amplification of getting an audience. And that's the biggest challenge right now for everyone. So how do you see this part of uh, looking at this, especially for um, for young people coming, but as well, even for us, how we can cope with this? And, uh, and there's a, a great stuff that you put on your Instagram that I really like, that is, in the end of the day, any good artist, like uh, Thomas, I think it was Thomas Dillon that said this, you, a good artist is a good a good stealer from other artists or from other poets. Uh, and in this case, it's not different what AI is doing. The point is that AI is going and doing this in mm-hmm. a immersive world where technology is, is becoming um, almost sentient in the very first stage. And mm-hmm. then we have all these immersive experience, which we call the metaverse. So how do you see this bridge that we are right now getting in? Yeah, I mean, we can talk about um, the legitimacy of AI art. And it's... I, I realize the second I say AI art is here to stay, people come out with pitchforks and um, just weapons ready to come and fight me. And then I have to explain to them I'm actually very pro-ethically trained AI and, and non-biased training models, which is the way that all these AIs should be working. But then at the same time, they go, AI art is theft. And I'm like, "Not it, it's not. And 
if you actually knew the technology behind it, it you would agree. And so there's a real disconnect uh, and backlash with AI art right now. And the way that I kind of have to explain it is when you're in design school, uh, especially like graphic design, web design, uh, they teach you to do mood boards. They teach you to use the phrase, steal like an artist. And what that basically means is you're grabbing all these different pieces that are published, pulling them down, putting them into a board, and then creating something new based on those influences, right? A, the transformative measure of art. Well, what AI does is that same process, but instead of five to 10 pieces, they're doing it with 50,000 to a million pieces, right? And so they're actually stealing like an artist better than humans are stealing like an artist, which is such a fascinating way to look at it, I think. It's when when you really get into, you know, how AI is doing this, I mean, they take a base image, they break it down into an algorithm and they, they analyze the piece as a whole. And then they try to rebuild it from scratch, just having that level of like influence on it in in a much more sophisticated way than humans can do it, even though um when we say that artists tend to go, yeah, but did we opt in? And I, I think that's the trade-off, right? We we need to stop considering AI art to be theft because it's not, but artists have a right to opt out of the training model. I think that's the give and take. Let, let me just uh, counterbalance yeah. because a very good point you made, you made <laughs> here. So one of the challenge right now for a creator, and you're quite still young, uh, I'm mm. a bit older than you, is that uh, if, let's say, you had this education of the boards, but if you go to someone that is in their 20s and is still right now on the university, this becomes completely a nightmare because in the end of the day is... Uh, if you are really um, open to get into this, you can immerse yourself and build this. But we are right now in a Blade Runner scenario. It's the first stage. And and the and the challenge right now is how we use these tools. For instance, you are a great creator. I see a lot of your stuff, and that's why I'm interviewing as well. But the challenge is that how you commercialize these models and how we expand this as, as the AI is still learning and going 10, fast, 10 times faster than humans. So I, I would like to hear that part. And as well, this is all happening as we create right now immersive experiences that are going to create new business models, but it's very difficult to make money on these business models. So I would like to see your ideas on I, this. I, especially. I, don't, yeah. I don't think it has to be, though. So here's the thing. Go ahead. Um, in the United... So there was actually a case where a guy... A, a wildlife photographer was at a uh, monkey reserve and he put his camera down on a stump and a marsupial named Naruto walked up, took the camera, took a selfie and the photographer loved the selfie. He, the owner of the camera loved the selfie so much that he published it. And this group called PETA people for ethical treatment of animals yeah. uh, sued him for, for the rights of the image to be copywritten for the the monkey and not the photographer with the camera because he himself did not take the photo right and what the cop what when it went to court in one of the lower courts it was deemed with the copyright office that no non-human entity can own a copyright animal or otherwise so the monkey never gets to own the rights to that copyright uh, there was an elephant that does paintings. The elephant can't own the rights to its painting. Uh, and artificial intelligence, pieces that come stri straight out of it, do not get to copyright those pieces. So, like, how do you get around this? Or, or how does it become a copywritten piece? Well, the best example I have is to use that image like a stock photo. So... You mean you're not going to download a photo off of a stock site and then just copyright it. It has to go through a level of transference, human interaction, and post-processing by a human for it to become a new piece. And that new piece is copyrightable.
Yeah, you touched uh, a huge, uh, a huge. Uh, actually, uh, probably one of the biggest challenges we have right now as humans. Actually, I, I just wrote today that uh, I think at the moment we are at the verge of that. At the end of the day, we are in a new evolutionary part. I think everything that happens in science fiction is happening right now. Of course, for you and for me, it's natural. We are indeed, most of the society mm -hmm. is trying to not okay. seeing it happening in front of it. So so let, let's go into, so you touch the IP, you touch the the way the machines are dealing with us. And of course, the problem mm -hmm. of society that is trying yeah. still to try to reverse engineer the, the future, which is not possible, actually the present, because the future is much more complex. So. How can we use this not to create any kind of uh because my my point with this podcast series is I always try to to interview thinkers that make me think more or at least think better, <laughs> but as well uh, whatever the age it's it's all about how we can actually create a better narrative because it's all about narrative like you for instance, you had the massive difficulty in your career and you were persistent and resilient until you got a chance that you build on your own and you didn't give up and you have a, an optimism which i respect a lot so but the challenge right now is that if you look at africa and most of the world population they're on their 20s and they're in africa and 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 asia and they don't have the chances that uh, both you and me have especially in the western world so how can we look at this technology especially when it comes to education and with all this velocity because or are you going, and I'm going in a big question, sorry, but I think you, you're a man of good questions, so that's good stuff, is how are we going to be solving this problem? Because this is just going to create a massive Pandora box in for good and bad, and I think for us, for people like us, it's great. I think we can use these technologies. But a lot of people, it's very difficult to use shared GPT, probably in Africa, unless you have a good Wi-Fi, which is very difficult in most of Africa. Uh, and even shared GPT, is, it, the documentation is straightforward, but it's very tricky. So and this is the biggest challenge. Even you in, in Seattle and in the US, you had a lot of challenges. So this is, for me, the biggest multi-billion dollars or trillion dollars that we have to solve as society. Because in the end of the day, we are getting into mostly what we've been touching so far. Your, your career is a not typical because you're quite successful on that, but is a, a career of a creative economy uh, geek or professional, <laughs> uh, and and uh, and that is a career that is extremely difficult. I deeply respect because, for instance, doing a YouTube channel like you do, like I do here, and you, we are paying to YouTube, not the other way around. And very yeah. few people get paid from YouTube. Um, and the same with Instagram, the same with all the stuff. So we have really a paradox of opportunities. And you touch the IP, which is even a much bigger problematic part. So I want to touch this. Sorry, I would like to hear your opinion because you touch this and you open the Pandora. So let's deep, yeah, deep, you know, I, a deep dive. I, I think AI in its infinite growth that could happen, um, I think it can be used to solve a lot of the world's problems. I mean, part of the, I mean, if we break down, say, like some of the biggest issues in the world and odds are, if we ask an AI with enough data, it'll give us those solutions. It's just, are we as humans willing to listen to those suggestions and those plans provided? And unfortunately, I don't have faith in humanity that will say yes. And that's kind of the problem, right? So like even in the United States, we have um, what are called food deserts, right? And that's just areas of the United States where it's really hard to get access to uh, fresh, clean, uh, unspoiled food, right? But at the same time, we have so much waste going on that we could feed the United States probably three times over. Why do we have food deserts? And it's basically because, one, we don't have laws in place that prevent uh, spoilage, basically meaning, you know, when it gets close to an expiration date, instead of providing you know, that food to like a local food bank or a distribution center where it can get to those food deserts. Um, they're more apt to just throw it away to keep, you know, costs high, right? 
because if you're giving it for free, no one's going to want to buy it, you know, et cetera. And it creates this whole cycle of just, it's just sad is what it is. But if we took AI and we put in the simulation data we probably need to make sure that food that would be thrown away gets to areas that need food that aren't getting it and just give it away, we could probably solve a good chunk of the United States hunger to a wide degree because we do have the resources. We just don't have the methods or planning put into place to make sure that it needs to get to where it needs to go. And that's part of the issue, right? Now you touch the most important thing. And I think the actually ironically at the moment, there's more people dying from obesity than actually dying from hunger, uh, statistic wise worldwide. So, and I think we have enough technology. The challenge is how we move forward with this. So it's, it's this passion that you have. And I appreciate that, that, that I think we need to pass to our audiences and as well, create communities. This is all about creating communities that actually can engage with us and that actually can create new alternative models that actually can actually take us to the next level. So let's go right now to your work because I really like your work. And to be honest, I was very positively fascinated by a lot of things, both into your videos creation and as well I, some of the things you're doing in the eye it's really cool stuff i heard the uh, uh, i heard the mario video start playing yes, for a second exactly. <laughs> yes i put it here because I'm, I'm actually doing my interaction here no really good stuff so can you tell us about this because you have here first one of the things you have here is the you have the journey to vr you have a lot of these mm. things and there's a lot of cool education okay. stuff so, so if you can tell us a bit how, how do you work and you build an audience quite for us you have here just one of your videos it got 14 million views so congratulations mm. Uh, so this one actually the one that got the view got the stuff which is just for people listening to us this is incredibly difficult <laughs> so because youtube algorithm is not so generous as you might think uh I, you have to work hardcore go ahead I, I think you just need to understand how the algorithm actually works um and then here's the problem with youtubers um when they first start they tend to make stuff for them but the way that the algorithm actually works is they're finding people who want to work, watch a certain subject. They're going out, finding that subject matter and delivering it to them. So if there's nobody that wants to watch your content, no one's going to see it. And so here at the office, uh, we have a, um, when we want something to actually get views and not, we're not just doing it for ourselves, uh, we use the four quadrant method, which was created by a company called Cinosaurus. Um, they actually came to our After Effects Seattle meetup one year, and they had this history of getting videos to go viral. And we were like, "I we need to figure out what they're doing so we can copy it. Excuse me. Uh, and basically the way that it works is this four quadrant method works on Fandom, flagpole content, quality, and marketing. And so the first thing is, is there already a pre-built fandom or a group of fans that would be interested in the thing you potentially want to build? Uh, no? Throw it away. Build something that there's already a fandom. Flagpole content is... Uh, events that happen around the year. So like Comic-Con, the Oscars, um, you know, New Year's, holidays, that sort of thing. Build content around that because you know it's coming up. You know, around the time that it happens, there's going to be people interested in that subject matter and your content is more likely to be seen. Um, the third is quality. It, of course, has to be good. Like you can't just put together something with that fandom and expect it to, you know, take off, it actually has to be good and it has to be watchable. Uh, a lot of people have great video, but terrible audio quality. And the second you have terrible audio quality, they will turn off that content right away. So you have to make sure that's good in all aspects. And of course the fourth marketing when you talk to a YouTuber and they're like, hey, I just released this video and you go, hey, so what are you doing now? They're like, well, I'm starting the next video. Like, 
you should probably make sure that that video that you just got done and put all this time into gets seen. So you need to, you know, have some sort of social media distribution cycle, right? Like, like you have, I mean, this video is going on to how many websites after, after it gets done, right? Exactly. They're on yeah. probably 50. Yeah. That's uh, yeah, yeah. a lot of stuff. Yeah. That's yeah. your social media distribution cycle that you go through with every one of these videos. The average YouTuber puts it on to YouTube and then starts creating the next one. And they don't do any marketing. They don't do any like post planning of what to do once the video is done. And that's part of the reason why big channels fail and they never grow. And so with the Mario video, um, that video alone, it's two minutes long, but it's a 360 animated film around a fandom that has a large audience. And so it took me 11 weeks to make it. And that was me sitting down, modeling all the pieces in C40, dropping it into After Effects. I used Element 3D to like build everything out there. And then I used a like footage of the original game from uh, the 80s to essentially make sure all the movements were correct. And that's why it was such a one-to-one experience that millions and millions and millions of people have experienced in a 2D fashion, but not a, a 360 fashion. And so I knew as soon as, you know, the, I saw it, I knew that I could bring this to life in that fashion in a unique and original way. And of course it, did really really well for itself oh well done it's really uh, and i love the way you, you presented this is really important <laughs> so let's to talk now about your book so uh especially the the last one um that is about education and it's a, an interesting yeah. for people listening to us so uh we're going to put as well the cover we're going to touch it but uh um <clears throat> it, it's an area that i i love because i think you your book actually should be more push forward because it's uh, it's one of the few books for children uh, and then mm-hmm. a great introduction to Metaverse for tech-savage kids. Uh, and as well, as people listen to us, I always like to remember at the moment there's around half a billion people every day on the Metaverse, especially on Roblox and platforms like that. So tell us a bit about the book. So the, the book is all the things you can do in the Metaverse mm-hmm. and it'll put an image here uh, as we speak and I have as well the book's DNA where I'm going to be talking about it. Yeah, the... Um... My book, All the Things You Can Do in the Metaverse, uh, is actually coming from a place of love. So the book revolves around two children uh, named Selena and Jaden. And Selena and Jaden are my niece and nephew. I I got engaged last year and now have three nieces and a nephew, which I love to death. And it was just before Christmas last year. And I was trying to find something about the metaverse for kids um, with Asian representation because they're they're 100% Chinese and I just couldn't find anything. And so I was like, you know what? I'm a creative. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a writer. I can do it myself. So I found a, a children's book illustrator um, online and I wrote the book and I had... I paid two editors to go over it, you know, like a professional does. And I got it self-published uh, through my my studio, Studio Cap'n, and it's available on Amazon. And really what it does is it takes these two children on a very short journey from the real world uh, into the metaverse, which is just this virtual connection of different worlds. And in it, I talk about, you know, NFTs and music and performances and the difference between virtual reality and augmented reality. And, you know, they, they put on VR headsets, they find in a box and get, you know, take it transported into this like magical world where they're playing games and, and doing all this like really fun stuff. Uh, just waiting for me as I, I put myself in it uh, just to show up. And then they find out, by the end of the book that it was actually me as a robot taking them on this adventure. And, you know, I, I wrote it for them specifically. Um, and they loved it so much that I, I just kind of made it available for everybody. 
Excellent. And that's really beautiful, uh, illustrated book. And we'll, we'll do a special book today about it because I, I really believe that this is the kind of thing. So, so for, like you said, there's very small representation, but there's very few books about these areas. So doing the research for the book, can you tell us what you found? And as well, how do you approach looking at your own family? How do you approach children to the metaverse in the right way? Because I'm sure everyone that has children in the family, they're more advanced than us. But of course, it's quite oh risky. My God. Because <laughs> if you are in, in Roblox or something like that, it's crazy. I, the... I get parents all the time that come up to me at like functions and they're like, hey, my kid is on Roblox all the time. You know, should I be worried? And the answer is yeah, yes and no. I mean, with every generation, there's going to be something that the next generation does that kind of scares the older generation, right? So like my parents, um, my grandparents were like, you shouldn't be listening to Elvis Presley. I don't like how he shakes his hips. And and for, for us, it was, you know, I I don't think you should be spending so much time playing, you know, that 2d side scrolling video game, you know, you should be getting outside and, and, you know, not getting into strangers cars and, you know, things like this. Right. And so now as we go through the process and, and the cycle all over again, um, we now have to look at, Hey, the internet has evolved. It, it's going into its third generation of the internet where every generation, the old one doesn't go away. It just gets added to, right? So like, you know, we had the ARPANET. We had version one of the internet started in 1993 to 2005, you know, web one, where people could all of a sudden get in this massively connected digital uh, book, essentially, and type in their questions and find communities of people just like them. And, and it really created this uh, tribal mentality. I, I'm not sure if that's uh, community mentality. And from there in, in 2005 till now, we've been living in this second generation of the internet, the, the social media age, right? So we went from the, the information age to the social media age. And where... Instead of finding content, we now have the biggest collection of self-created publications daily because everybody is sharing their thoughts, video, images. You know, it's it's really become a social network of individuals across the world. And sometimes, you know, that leads to not such great conversations. And, you know, it, it definitely becomes a can create like polar opposite opinions. And that's an entire separate conversation we can have about uh, data theft and how it's using to like manipulate people. Cause you can actually completely change somebody's political view in 20 days just by pumping enough information at them online. And unless you're trained to spot it uh, like I am, it's really easy to like, change somebody's view right um and as we're we're getting into you know the third generation we now have this byproduct that's going to happen called the metaverse right and so right now what we have are these inklings of virtual worlds we have these platforms creating virtual worlds and the problem is they are not interconnected yet i mean they all use the internet for the most part but they're not interconnected. We don't have that level of interoperability that we need to actually have the metaverse, right? And so there is this nifty um, concept called the immersive internet scaling model that basically goes like this. At the base level, you have your virtual world, your level, your instance, the uh, the experience that you as an avatar are in. And then when you get further out, you have what is called the platform level, uh, the meta galaxy, or the virtual world cluster as put together by Matthew Ball in his book, The Metaverse and How It's Going to Change Everything. And then when you get to the top level, where these platforms can now talk to each other, where you are on the internet level, that is the metaverse. 
And so Beautiful. that, and that's the future that our kids are going to be living in. No, and I think this is the present actually, because they're already there. So it's just how we, well, we're going not, to be. Not, not quite, not quite. Uh, so for the metaverse to actually happen, we have to be in the third generation of the internet, which we're not yet. That's kind of the stipulation. But don't you think, I, I understand that. I agree with you on that part, but partly they're already there. Because for instance, if I look at my, look at my daughter, my daughter mm -hmm. is playing on Roblox. Mm -hmm. She's seeing something on Disney Plus and she's talking with me. And then if necessary, she puts the music and YouTube on another place. Yeah. So, uh, or at least uses the music. So, and, and as well, she's talking with me and she's playing with five children all over the world. Yeah, of I mean, course, that's... The, my case, I'm those are, the family. But are those already, all different? Are those all different applications or is that the same experience, singular experience being ran that's doing all those things? No, it's multiple applications at the same time. And, and But at the same time, you have, the reason I'm saying that partly we're there is because she's actually, as she does this, she's playing with mm -hmm. her own avatar and she's interacting mm -hmm. with multiple people in, the, in their own game. So partly the narrative is there. Of course, right now I'm not using VR because I don't allow her to do it, but probably she would do. But it, it's this kind of details that is right now starting. Like you said, our there's the generation now. And, and even between you and me, there's already a lot of the generations part, but this is just the beginning. So a fascinating things. And, and I appreciate that you have the time as well. So I, I think we're passing one hour, but I still want to ask you one or two more questions. So sure. let's, uh, if you have time, so let's look just as your process as a creator, because I think you, you have a unique stop spot because you're a writer, you are a creator and you are as well a, 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 an entrepreneur. So mm -hmm. how do you juggle all these different things together? Because I think that's probably the million dollars questions for us for um, our generation. <laughs> I have the best support structure that I could ever ask for. Um, so like when we talk, uh, when you mentioned uh, Glitched, right? Uh, that was the first in VR show to ever be ordered like a traditional TV show. Uh, I created it. I hosted it with my, my friend Topher Welsh who created uh, the Seattle uh, After Effects Seattle, which is that um, motion design user group. And now we've been roommates for four years after we we sold the show together. And that was so we could be in the same place, work together and continue to to evolve our business, uh, Studio Cap'n. And so just having that level of support in-house um, has been amazing. Um, my, my beautiful fiance is so supportive, even though she's very much like, does the thing you're doing equal money? Cause we want to buy a house. Um, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, you know, priorities are, you know, great. Cause you know, I, I want to go off and just be creative. And sometimes I forget to think about, oh, I got bills to pay. And she's more like, Hey, we got bills to pay. Like, I love that you're being creative, but how is this thing going to create money? And you're like, absolutely right come back to reality a little bit. Um, and so I think there's this, um, there's a quote from the show Modern Family that I really love where it's dreamers and realists need each other because if dreamers didn't have realists, they would float off and get burned into the sun. But realists without dreamers would never be able to get off the ground. Right. And so, you know, having having that like mix of people in my life that support my efforts, who are willing to share things that are willing to bounce ideas off of me and be honest and not just have a bunch of yes men like you might have at a company, um, I think is extremely important. And so I, while I've been able to dip my fingers into like a lot of pies, um, having that support structure is critical for for any entrepreneur for any creative um having people willing to you know if, if i haven't asked and, and i know it's important they'll say yes every time because i need that support and most creatives when they start building they don't always have that and i, I think that's really unfortunate wonderful words to wrap up and i appreciate so there's a lot of things we're going to put links to your creativity and uh, some of the cool stuff you're doing especially i, I suggest you get uh, for people listening to us to go to youtube um and we're going to put all the links below here on youtube or whatever you're seeing so there's the studio cap on 
that you're going to find um, any places you want as well people to go and what are you doing right now for people that don't know so much about your creativity because you have quite a lot of different things you're doing yeah um, probably the newest section of my career is I actually joined the XRSI uh, or the XR Safety Initiative uh, created by Kavya Perlman um, it is a nonprofit that serves as the um as an advisor for the metaverse uh standards forum as well as different agencies for the united nations um i'm one of about 150 professionals who have joined this organization to help create a better more inclusive version of the internet in the future and i currently serve as the global xr education advisor so it's literally part of my job or made it to be my job to go out in the world, be an educational advisor wherever I can and make sure that, you know, as we continue on this path to the metaverse, let's create the best version of that we possibly can. Because when we say this is going to be the world that our children are going to live in, we kind of got to start building it in the correct way now. So when that happens in five to eight years, it's the best it can be. Wonderful. Uh, so, Gina, really inspiring. And thank you so much for this uh, um, 60 mid minutes of fantastic exchange. I think probably I will come back and ask you for a couple of other things. But for now, I suggest people listening to us, please engage with Eugene on social media. We're going to put all the links. But uh, as well, uh, on Instagram, there's really cool stuff that he's creating. And of course, this part is a thought leader, which is fantastic and super necessary. And please, like you said, learn and get part of this because this is all in our hands to make it really better. Thank you so much. 